So as we begin our reading in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The term born again has been kind of hijacked and used for a lot of different things. It's been used to describe what's happening maybe in a in financial market. Uh, we've seen it described as athletes talking about their career or, or other people talking about their careers or sometimes just given a new lease on life. Because I was reading an article this week that talked about how one time a woman that viewed herself as a sex symbol stated that she had been born again in her career. And I'll tell you, when that is the, what the born again is going to refer to, then it has really been twisted. Jesus is the one that used the term with Nicodemus. And as we dig into it here this morning, we want to find out exactly what he means. In fact, I would say that there's probably nothing more crucial in all your life than finding out just what this means. And the reason is because of what he says to Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you're not even going to see the kingdom of God. And when you get to the end of this conversation, based on later verses, it looks like Nicodemus has still not come to a saving faith in him. We do know it does look like Nicodemus did eventually come to Christ, but I don't think it necessarily occurred right at this meeting of him right here. But Jesus tells Nicodemus flat out, look, your whole eternal future is based on this one thing. You've got to be born again. Now, if our eternal futures hinge on this one idea, then we better know a couple things about it, right? Well, as we look at it this morning, we see that Jesus gives a must. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And that's what we're considering here this morning is this idea that we must be born again. Now, as we look down through the passage, it answers a lot of questions for us. In fact, we're going to go through five different questions that get answered as we look at this experience between Nicodemus and Christ. The first question I think that we logically need to start with is, what does it mean? What does it mean to be born again? And in fact, that's Nicodemus's question. What does that mean to be born again? That's what he asks. He's like, 
kind of, what are you talking about? The rabbis of those of that day actually had a saying that they said when a, a Gentile person converts, proselytizes to Judaism, uh, that they are born again, that they, they have a new life at that point. And so you'd think the terminology would maybe be a little bit familiar with him, although he wouldn't intend for it to apply to him, the teacher of Israel, needing to go back and start all over. We go back to this new birth and a new life. Now, some would uh, point out, and rightly so, that the words born again can be translated. The last part, again, is translated sometimes from above in different usages. I don't think that that's particularly helpful here, although it it does. Uh, it is kind of what happens because it's talking about a new birth that comes from God. But I do think that the born again is probably the more accurate way to see this. The reason I think that is because of Nicodemus's response. Can a grown man enter back into the womb and be born a second time? Which means that Nicodemus at least took it to mean again, be born again. So what does it mean? Well, he says, can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus says, no, that's not what I'm talking about. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. So in other words, physical birth brings physical life. He says, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then he compares these two things. He says, you've got to be born of the water and the Spirit to be able to be a part of the kingdom of God. Now, what is the water in this situation? Some people think that it's still making a contrast with the physical, saying you've got to be born of the water, kind of referring to the, the amniotic fluid, right? Like when a lady is going to give birth and her water breaks. And so they're saying you've got to be born physically and spiritually. I don't think that's what it's saying. He says you've got to be born of the water and the Spirit, or even the Spirit. And so I think the water is actually symbolizing that spiritual birth. Also, when you look at the, the idea of the water breaking and that kind of stuff, that wasn't really a, not that it didn't occur or happen back at that time, but it wasn't really a saying that we can find that they used anywhere back at that time. So I don't think it's referring to the water breaking, but I think it is referring to the Spirit. You do find within Scripture a comparison between the water and the Spirit. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 36, and that's what I think Jesus is kind of pointing Nicodemus back to with that reference to the water. In Ezekiel chapter 36, in verses 24 through 28, it says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So you find in this passage in Ezekiel these two things. The one is a symbol of the other. He says, I'm going to sprinkle you with clean water and I'm going to pour my spirit upon you. And then you hit chapter 37. And in chapter 37, Ezekiel's taken out. He's taken to this valley and there's all these bones laying all over the valley. And God tells him, He says, speak to the bones. And he prophesies over the bones. It says they start to click together. And so you can hear all these bones kind of clicking together. They're, they're rejoining to where they were attached before. And then flesh forms over them. And so these dry bones are, are transformed into life. They're Born again. They're given new life. And then God says, prophesy over them again and breath 
will come into them. And, and so He prophesies over them again and the breath comes into them and they become living beings. And in the latter part of chapter 37, it says, Then He said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. What is God telling Nicodemus? He says, look, you're already born of the flesh. You've got to be born spiritually. Now, it's not talking about the spirit that's just a part of man, right? When, when we were created, we were created body and spirit, body and soul, material part and immaterial part. That's not what it's talking about here. This is talking about the Holy Spirit entering into us. This is talking about the Holy Spirit quickening us, making us alive in Christ. He's saying you've got to be born of the Spirit, He points to kind of the nature of that transformation. What does that look like? Well, he compares it to the wind. Anyone born of the Spirit is like the wind. You don't see the wind, but you see the effects of the wind. You see the branches on the trees move. You see the blades of longer grass bend over. You see dust kick up in the air. You see the waves on the lake. You see the effects of wind. You don't see the wind itself. And he says that's what the Spirit's like. He says the Spirit goes where He wants and does what He wants. And you can't see the Spirit, but you see the effects of the Spirit. You know, the Bible constantly tells us or reminds us to observe our own faith through those things. It gives us a list of the fruits of the Spirit. The love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, kindness, faith, meekness, temperance. A list of those things that we can look and see. Well, is the Spirit active in my life? Is he? We're told to look for that transformation. That's why like in John and 1 John, it calls them to test their faith. He's trying to give them assurance of their salvation. How can you have assurance of your salvation? It basically boils down, do you see the Spirit at work in your life? Do you find that you love your brothers? Do you find that you're obeying the commands? These are all things the Spirit's in, in tune with and going to promote in your life. That's what the new birth is. What does it mean to be born again? It means to be born of the Spirit. Well, who's it for? Is this just for Nicodemus? Is it for more than that? Is it for certain classes or categories of people? Is it for everybody? And the answer to that rings loudly in John 3.16 where he says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It's for everybody. Who needs to be born again? Every single person in the world. Nicodemus, when he comes, if you were going to find an exception... This might be somebody you'd think might be it. I think Nicodemus might have thought he might be it. Because he's clearly taken off guard with Christ's statement. But when you look at Nicodemus, who exactly is Nicodemus that he needs to be born again? Well, to start with, he's just part of the group maybe that ended chapter 2. In chapter 2, verses 23-25, through 25, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem, talking about Jesus, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for He Himself knew what was in man. That's saying that there's a whole group of people that saw the show, they saw the miracles, and they got on board. Or did they? The Bible says you know, they believed in Him, but He didn't really believe in them. He did not entrust Himself to them. Because you know what? Many times in the Bible you'll find groups of people 
that it'll say, and they believed in him because that's what they said that they did. But when you follow through, it turns out not so much. They don't remain faithful. You don't see any fruit in their life. The parable that Jesus did about the farmer going out to sow the seed in the field taught exactly that lesson. Seed was sown on many different kinds of soil, but uh, there's only one that really produced fruit that was really legitimate belief. The others, not, not so much. You know what? Many of those people, when he says some of the harder things he's going to say, they're going to go away. They're not really genuinely trusting in him. Nicodemus, you could put in that camp. Right? Because Nicodemus comes in and he says, we know you're a teacher come from God. Hey, is that faith? No. Jesus, a few verses later, he's going to tell him, look, if I speak to you of earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? In other words, he's saying, you don't believe. You're not trusting in me yet. I might have your attention, but you're not trusting yet. If he's trusting, he would be born again because that's how that happens. In fact, he makes what three different statements about him. In verses 10 through 12, he says, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things, he says. That was in verse 10. Then in verse 11, he says, We bear witness about what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Remember, chapter 1 talked about Jesus coming to His own and His own did not welcome Him. They did not receive Him. Nicodemus is in that camp. Jesus says, I'm coming, I'm telling you these things, but you don't receive it. Now, thankfully, he is going to receive it at some point, but not yet. At this point, he hasn't. And then he says in verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? From the outside, I would think the people of Israel would be shocked, as Nicodemus was shocked, that he's not making the cut here. He's a Pharisee. A Pharisee is a very, very religious person. The Pharisees seem to have popped up during the time between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. They came into being. We don't know exactly how all that happened, but we can get a pretty good idea. Um, the word for Pharisee means the separate ones, those who separate themselves. They took their religion very seriously, and they tried to live very separate from the world so that they could be separated unto God. But that's really where their focus ended up stuck. Their focus didn't end up stuck on God. It got stuck on their separation, on their being separated. And so they got so focused on that that they lost sight of God. They had all kinds of crazy rules. Most of them had to do about the Sabbath. What does it mean to violate the Sabbath? And so they came up with uh, hundreds of rules about violating the Sabbath. You weren't allowed to spit on the ground on the Sabbath. Because if you spit on the ground, you might be tempted to rub your foot on it, to rub it into the dust, and that might be considered work. So you can't spit on the ground. They wouldn't carry water more than they could drink in about one gulp. You weren't allowed to tie a knot in a rope, which caused a problem when you needed some water out of the well. But they found a way around it because you can't tie a knot in a rope, but you can tie a knot in the sash of your wife's dress so that they don't get immodest on the Sabbath. You wouldn't want that. And so you can tie a knot in the sash on the dress. And so I understand it was a pretty common thing to use your wife's sash to get the water out of the well. Because since you can tie a knot in a sash, you can tie it to the bucket. They got so focused on that kind of thing. Christianity saw an experience like that later. Where does the idea of uh, having nuns and monks and stuff like that come from? It's not in the Bible. Well, you know what happened in Christianity is Christianity spent the first 300 years of its existence getting beat up on. Persecution was heavy against Christianity for the first 300 years. And so, you know what that does? It keeps a pretty pure church. Not that they didn't have their struggles. They had their struggles just like we have our struggles. But if you're going to pay a price for something to be considered that, then it tends to have a purifying aspect on the church. But you know what happened? Is the church went from being persecuted to being the place to be. 
There's a guy named Constantine became the emperor in the Roman Empire. And he decided to adopt Christianity. And so he adopted Christianity and made it the official religion of the Roman Empire. So it went from you got beat up on if you were a Christian to now you were celebrated and everybody wants to be part of this group. you got a lot of people all of a sudden becoming part of the group that aren't really part of the group. That haven't been, like Nicodemus, born again. What happened is you have people that were like, you know what, this isn't the church of what I know. Those people aren't what we are. And so they started to try to separate themselves from the world, taking vows of poverty and chastity. And, and then you start getting the institution starting to form around some of those kinds of things. And, and that's, that's pretty much what happened with the Pharisees. The Pharisees ended up being this group of people focused on their separate life from everything else, these ultra-religious people. But here's the deal. Even this ultra-religious person, Nicodemus, got to be born again. You're still not making the cut. You know, the, the religious leaders of their day said that uh, if you're an Israelite, you just were part of the kingdom of God unless you did something big that got you thrown out of it. Jesus tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you're the teacher of Israel and you're not even in the kingdom. You're not even going to see it unless you get that spiritual birth. So obviously, the spiritual birth does not come through religion. If it came through religion, Nicodemus was a very religious person. He'd have been in there. Being a Pharisee put Nicodemus in about 1% of the population. But not only that, it also says that he was a part of the Jewish ruling council. All the way back into the Old Testament, they had a, they had a council of 70 elders that, that conducted, uh, watched over Israel, conducted the business of Israel. Nicodemus is on that council. Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. All of these things pointing in his favor, you would think. And Jesus says, nope, you're missing it. Now how can a guy... That sincere, that focused on his religion, making those kind of sacrifices, separating himself from different things in the world to try to be separated unto God. How can, how can that guy still be on the outs? But Jesus tells him with emphatic language, because notice what he says, you must, you must be born again. You know, there's two things that must happen that are listed in this passage. That's the first one. He says to Nicodemus, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then later in the passage, there's one more must. In order for that to happen, there's another must. And that must is that the Son of Man must be lifted up. So must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So here's the point. Who needs this? All of us need it. John 3.16, he says for the whole world. If Nicodemus doesn't make it, who's this ultra-religious, very separated guy. Nobody makes it. Nicodemus becomes that extreme example. You know what Nicodemus has to do? Nicodemus just has to stop it. Right? His whole life has been based on earning God's favor by separating from these things, by doing these good works, these good deeds, by, by working his way up among the Pharisees and becoming the teacher of Israel. And His whole life has been based around this idea of achieving access to God. And you can't do it. You can't do it. This is God's work. How much did you have to do with your birth? You experienced it, but that's about it. And it's the same with when, when you think back to Ezekiel. When it said these things were going to happen, the dry bones come alive and everything, what is happening? God says, I am going to do this. I'm going to wash you with clean water. I'm going to put my Spirit within you. I'm going to do this. The new birth is the work of God. It's a spiritual birth and it's a work of God in our lives. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. That's how this works. 
So what does Nicodemus got to do? He's got to let go of all these things. What is Nicodemus holding on to? He's holding on to his good works. He's holding on to his position as a Pharisee. You know what? We know somebody else that was like him. Remember, that's how the Apostle Paul started. And this is the Apostle Paul as he shares his experience of being where Nicodemus was. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 through 11, he says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, that's exactly what Nicodemus did do, put a lot of confidence in the flesh. The rituals that he went through and the separateness and all those things, those are, that's all of the flesh. And the Apostle Paul goes on to say, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You see, these are all the things that a Pharisee counted. His circumcision into the covenant people of Israel. His tribe that he was within, within the people of Israel. Righteousness under the law of God. All these things were things that you would accomplish in your flesh, in your own steam. What does the Apostle Paul say? I counted as loss. Whatever gain I had, anything that I had in, in his past life, he said, I counted all as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. You see, the point is, there's two different kinds of righteousness here and you've got to take your pick. That's what was before Nicodemus. Nicodemus had a whole life of building up his righteousness before God. And Jesus looked at him and said, you've got nothing. The Apostle Paul eventually saw that. And he says, I'll give it all up. I'll give all my righteousness away. It's nothing. And throw it on the dung heap. It's nothing. If I can but have the righteousness of Christ that comes only through faith. You see, that's the point you have to get to to be born again. You have to realize that your level of righteousness will never get you there. That as you stand before God, you got nothing until you have Christ. And then you have it all. But you have to come to that point. It's just like the story that he tells later. The fiery serpents had come into the camp and they bit the people and the people were dying. And God gives them a way of salvation. And what is that way of salvation? Moses takes a bronze serpent, makes it, puts it up on top of a pole, lifts it up for everybody to see. He says, so then this is what happens when, you, when you're dying, when you get bit and you're dying. See, that, that, that's the point. You know you're dying. Then what do you do? Go find the serpent. Look up at the serpent. What is that? That's an act of faith, right? Because you've heard. You know that if you're dying... You can go look at the serpent and you'll be healed. If you didn't believe it, you wouldn't go. You wouldn't look up. Why bother? Sounds foolish, doesn't it? But you know you're dying. And you go and you look up and you're healed instantly. And Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes, that's what it meant to look at the serpent. You're believing it. Whoever believes 
would have eternal life. You see, it's not till we get to that point where you've got to realize you're dying. I went to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, faithfully for a year and a half before I came to Christ. And you know why I didn't come to Christ earlier? I never realized I was dead. But the morning I realized I was dead, now Christ made sense. And you know what happened? I got born again. I believed. You see, before that, I was clinging to my own righteousness. I was saying, you know, God's happy with me because you know I'm not that bad a person. I was clinging to my own righteousness. And I actually thought I had some. Until all of a sudden, one day I know, I think it's just the Holy Spirit working within me, because I'd heard it over and over. It just takes a long time to think, sink into my thick head and heart. But all of a sudden I realized, when it came to my righteousness, I've got nothing. But Christ died for me, and I can have His. You know, that is exactly the problem with Israel that the Apostle Paul would point out in Romans 10. He said, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. How can we be righteous before God? It's only through Christ. He's the end of the law. He's the last saying. It's in Him that we are righteous. He said, but my prayer for Israel, the Apostle Paul says, his brothers, he says is that they would realize this because they won't submit themselves to the righteousness of God. Why? Because they're seeking to establish their own righteousness. They're trying to earn their own way. That's part of our sinful nature. We say, no, no, God, I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I've heard people say, well, if God doesn't accept me, for who I am, then He's just not going to accept me. And I think, you fool! You know what's on the line? Because you're going to stand before God and you're going to realize you got nothing. You see, Nicodemus was standing there with a lot of stuff. And Christ is telling Nicodemus, you want to be born again, you got to get rid of that junk. Imagine that. Nicodemus says, do I really have to start over? Do i got to be born back in my mother's womb? Christ said, well, that's physical life, but in a sense, Yes. All this righteousness that you think you've been earning, accumulating, it's nothing. Isaiah would say all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags before God. He's telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you've got you to gotta set that stuff down in order to be born again. So as we look at it here this morning, what is this born again? Born again is a spiritual birth, and next week we're going to learn why exactly we need that. But his point to Nicodemus is Nicodemus has this whole list of righteousnesses that he's achieving in his life. And that's what he's banking on for acceptance before God. We tend to do that. We tend to say, well, I was baptized. Well, I was confirmed. Well, I grew up in a Christian home. Well, I attend church. Well, I'm always there for other people when they have needs. I hear that one a lot as a justification of our own righteousness. And you'll notice all those things are good things. If that's what we're relying on, if that's what we're trusting in, we're trusting in the wrong things. It's not until we get to that point and we realize, I'm on my way to hell. It's not until we get to that point that we recognize, I need Christ. When we realize that we are bankrupt before God and we're going to stand before Him and we turn to Him in faith, that is the moment that we're born again. I'm afraid, and I think our churches, our churches put a lot of stock in, a, in an experience like that, which, you know what, it does take an experience in a sense. 
Nobody's born slowly. We write down the time when that baby comes out of the womb. So there is an instant time when you're born again. You don't, you don't grow into this faith. We do grow in our faith. There's a process that's involved, but there is an instantaneous point where we are born again. It just makes sense. The Bible says that before that point, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. After that point, we're alive in Christ. You can't be dead-ish. And you can't be alive-ish. Right? It's one or the other. So there is a point. But you know what? At the same time, I'm concerned because we don't want to at the same time give people this idea that, you know what? You're saved because you repeated a prayer. You're saved because... You know what? You know what you're saved because of? You're saved because you embraced Christ. You're saved because you're trusting in His righteousness, not your righteousness. That's what it means to be born again.